Welcome to The Podium Project, a podcast about great public speaking, storytelling, and persuasion. My name is Trevor Curry, and I'm the founder of Podium Consulting and The Podium Project. Today, we have a guest who's going to talk about voice. Not the sound that comes out of your mouth kind of voice, but the how you express yourself type of voice. I think Victor Hugo said that nothing is as powerful as an idea whose time has come. Well, the expertise of our guest today is perfectly timed. We've never had more ways to express ourselves to more people. With all the social media platforms that are out there, billions of people are doing it, and yet few do it well. Those who do do it well tend to have creative ideas that are conveyed in an authentic voice. And that is the nexus of the expertise of our guest today. He's billed as an arms dealer for the creative revolution. He's a creative professional himself, an author, a speaker, a trainer, a podcaster, and to round out some alliteration, a parent. Todd Henry, welcome. (laughs) Thanks, Trevor. It's great to be here. So I know in, in your most recent book, Todd, you talk about at one point the importance of the commonality in the word communication. So let's get on a common level. When we talk about voice, can you give us a sense for what that means? Yeah. So um, interesting you bring up that word communication because the the root of that word, as you know, is is, uh, communis, which means to make common, right? So when we communicate, we're making something common. The problem is, I think for many people, they don't understand how what they communicate is received by other people. And, you know, I think that gets to the point of, you know, why I wrote Louder Than Words, which is that your voice isn't what you say, it's how other people hear you. But we're often ill aware of how people receive what it is that we're trying to communicate. And sometimes that's because we ourselves are not clear about what we want to communicate, what we want to make common. And so the first step in developing a voice that is compelling, a voice that actually resonates and, and mobilizes people is kind of drilling down into, you know, what is it that you that you stand for? What is it that you're trying to do? You're trying to make common, you know, what impact do you want to have? How do you want to resonate? Um, because that really is the core of any great voice. Your voice is an expression through a medium to achieve an impact. And I think in order to have that ultimate impact that you want, you have to be mindful of the expression, right? Which is what it is you want to communicate. You have to have to also have to be uh, mindful of the medium or the platform that you're using. And then at the end of the day, you also have to be mindful of that, that impact, because at the end of the day, it's all about the impact that you're achieving. So I, I want to get into voice further and unpack that. But before we move on, Todd, I'd love to follow up on the distinction between your intended point to communicate and how you're being received or perceived. So do you have any thoughts on how people can check in on how other peoples are receiving them and perceiving them when they're communicating? Yeah. So I, th- I think, uh, you know, I do this often. I mean, I think we could put this in the context of, of the, the podcast and the audience, right? Which is live presenting or, uh, you know, speaking or telling stories. And, you know, I spend a lot of my time in front of audiences. I speak to f- you know, between 40 and 50 groups a year, often, you know, larger groups where you can't really see the faces as well because you're kind of blinded by the lights. But, uh, but nonetheless, there are certain things you can look at to see or, or, or you know, kind of pay attention to to see if people are connecting with what you're saying in, in sort of a live presentation format, you know, responsiveness is really important and whether people are responding to nuance is really important. If people aren't responding to nuance, then it often means that they've 
stopped listening to you. They're not paying attention to what you say anymore. Um, and, and this is, I think, really important, you know, because if, if you're going to communicate something, if you want to make something common, then you have to hold people's attention. You know, the word entertain means to hold someone's attention. It means to, to capture their attention and to hold it. And so I think we have to be hypersensitive to how the other person is responding, connecting, and we can throw out little you know, little hooks to, to sort of try to figure out, is the other person still engaged? Are they still responding? You know, throw out little nuanced jokes, insert strategic pauses when you're communicating. And we're sort of getting into more of the like technical side of, you know, presenting and speaking and, and storytelling. But I think those are important tactics. Those are tactics I use pretty often when I'm in a big room, you know, full of, I guess, kind of faceless people because of, you know, being on stage, being in, in, in the lights, you know, it's, it's, um, sometimes important that you have those strategic pauses where you just stop and you just let silence fill the room and you sort of reclaim attention or where you throw out a little nuanced joke or a little nuanced point to see if people respond to it. And if they don't respond, then it might be time to, you know, take a different tactic to try to, to regain their attention. Lots of great stuff there, Todd. And and one of the things that I think is so important that I like to emphasize with other people is what you were just mentioning as it relates to your orientation to the entertainment in order to capture to keep the audience's attention has to come from not what you want to say, but what they right. need to hear. That's right. Can you, based on your wealth of experience speaking, Todd, can you give us one example where you might add a little nuance to a story just as a quick check-in did they capture the humor in that? Are they with me right now? Anything come to mind? I have a handful of kind of uh, go-to jokes that I've used over and over or go-to sort of comments or go-to little like throwbacks are really valuable in that circumstance. Like, for example, early in my talk, I often tell this story about my son and, and assumptions that he makes about, you know, fireworks making his feet fuzzy and all of this stuff. And all, you know, at some point in my talk, we'll do a little throwback reference to that to see if it gets a giggle, you know, mm. see if it gets a little response or... Um, I'll do a throwback to a point from earlier, or I'll use, frankly, sometimes I'll use repetition. I'll say, I'll say, you know, this and not, and then I'll leave a, a blank, right? You know, like for example, when I, if sometimes I'll use Martin Seligman's three P's about how we take narratives and we, we turn them into something, um, that becomes destructive. So they become permanent, they become pervasive, uh, and they become personal. And I'll, I will, sometimes introduce that at a point where I feel like maybe I need to reclaim, claim the audience's attention. And I'll say, because I failed here, I will fail. And I just leave it hanging and I let them respond everywhere. You know, right. um, uh, I failed, therefore I must be a, and I leave it blank and I let them respond. And again, it's just a way of saying kind of, are you with me? Are you here? You know, and after the first one or the second one, the audience usually comes alive. They don't expect the first one usually, but if, if I get a good response to the first one, I know they are with me right, right. now, you know, and it's hard to tell sometimes. In, in, I mean, I just spoke last week to a room of like 800, 900 people at a conference in Austin. And I mean, you could hear a pin drop in mm. my presentation and it's hard to tell sometimes, is that because they're 
bored or is it because they're really with me, you know? Um, and it's only in those moments when you drop a joke or when you do a little sort of call and response thing where you ask the audience to reciprocate, that's when you can tell. And, and last week it was that, I mean, they were really with me because when I did that, it was overwhelming response, you know? Um, so those are just little sort of, um, you know, tactical things that I think can be really, really helpful. And what's interesting is as I envision you using these tactics in front of the audience, Todd, coincidentally, they're a great way to consistently reinforce your voice. And so let, let's talk a little bit more about the voice. One of the things that I've noticed in your work is that you use mathematical formulas to convey ideas. And, and one formula you've created relates to compelling ideas. So what are the components that are part of the formula of a compelling voice? Yeah, so these are the three elements of what I call the voice engine in Louder Than Words because they really drive the development of a compelling resonant voice over the course of time. And this is something that, that you develop, by the way. It's not, I mean, very few people are just blessed with, uh, you know, sort of graced with a compelling resonant voice from, you know, out of the womb. Um, but instead, it's something you kind of develop over time. You figure out what does my audience want? How can I shape my ideas? ideas so that they are connecting or clicking. But the three core elements of, of a resonant, compelling voice are identity, which is really rooted in who are you, you know, and, and what do you stand upon and what do you believe and what matters to you and what is your work founded upon? And that's really sort of the root of identity. And there are a couple of things that we can parse out from that as elements of identity, but that's kind of the, the big bucket. The second big bucket is uh, vision. And vision is about where you're taking your work and where you're leading your intended audience. And this is equally important. You know, again, we often think about you finding your voice. It's all about me and what I care about and what I want to do with my work. But that's not really accurate because you can stand in the woods and scream and be the most authentic, you know, compelling person to yourself. But if nobody's listening to you, it's not going to have impact. And at the end of the day, we're trying to achieve impact with our work. So that means we have to define our intended audience. We have to have a vision for where we want to take our work and where we want to lead that audience. And so that becomes a part of our voice as well. And then the third part of this, the third element of the voice engine is mastery. You know, we can have tremendous sense of who we are and what we want to do. We can have a tremendous uh, you know, vision for our work and our intended audience. But if we're not masters of craft, if we haven't developed the skills we need to take that work artfully into the world, then we're going to be we're not going to be credible. People aren't going to listen to us. So we have to also develop a sense of mastery of uh, the basic skills of our trade. We also have to develop a, you know, a sense of timing. What's the right way to introduce this and when is the right time? And how can I sense kind of some of the cultural themes that I might be able to weave into my work so that it's more palatable, it's more you know, contextualized for people? Because once again, you can introduce the best idea in the world uh, and people can ignore it because it, it's not they have no context for it. You know, people have to have context for ideas, especially new ideas. Um, so those are kind of the three core elements of the voice engine, identity, vision, mastery. And they work together as you, you develop a sense of who you are and you drill down into authenticity and uniqueness, then that helps you refine your vision and where you're taking your work. And then your vision sort of helps you refine your sense of what skills you need to master in order to be able to accomplish that. And then as you do that, it helps you understand yourself better and who you are. So they, they all kind of work together in a virtuous cycle of developing your voice over time. And I found in the book, Todd, it's really helpful when you talk about when one of those pieces is missing. And so, for example, I think in one point you talk about when you have identity and you have vision, but you don't have mastery, then you're not credible. That's right. And, and so it's really helpful when you provide the whole formula, but also when you unpack the various pieces that could be missing. A moment ago, when you were describing the vision component, 
And you're emphasizing it's not just about where you're going, but also where you're taking your audience. I can't tell you how often I work with people and they've retained me to help them prepare to present. And Todd, these are accomplished, intelligent business leaders, and they tell me that their content's ready to go. They just want to work on the on the delivery. No problem. And I ask them, in effect, where do you want to take your audience? They don't know the answer. They have no idea. Yeah. They have no idea. And so it, it's so important at so many levels, not just the vision piece, but of course, identity and mastery as well. I, I As I read your book, I was drawing a lot of connections between your work and the written voice. Hmm. But But let's be clear for people listening. What does the voice elements that you're talking about apply to? Is this just written communication? Is it written and oral? No, it, it applies to everything. It applies to your body of work. You know, I, mean, I think on, on a macro scale, your body of work that you build, which is any place you add value, any place in your life where you create value that didn't exist, it essentially is driven by your competence in these three areas. You know, does it represent you? you know, A, which is about identity, you know, is it authentic to who you are? Is it unique in the sense that it reflects your unique attributes, your unique skills, your unique passions, your unique experiences? You know, so really, I think you could ask that about your your body of work as a whole, um, you know, your, your vision, right? That does it um, reflect that you have a sense of where you're going? Or does it reflect that you're kind of waffling, you're kind of, you know, to and fro? Does it lack precision? Your precision is an important part of resonating. If you're not precise in what you communicate, it's difficult for people to see how they fit in or fit out of what you're saying. You know, if you want to connect with people, you have to be precise in what you communicate. And you also have to be consonant. You know, your work has to be internally consistent. If you know, you're saying one thing one day and the next day you're saying something that's completely different from what you just said, or at least you know, doesn't fit in some way into some kind of big bucket that seems related, then people are going to lose interest. They're going to go away. Um, you have to be consonant or internally consistent. So that's important. You can look at your body of work as a whole and, you know, whether you're a leader, a manager, if you're you know, a writer, if you're, uh, you're someone who is uh, doing, um, you know, if you're creating advertising for a client, you know, you're designing, whatever you're doing, you can look at your body of work and ask, does it reflect these attributes? And so all of these things apply really in any context to any kind of work we do. And especially as we look at the macro body of work that we're building. Can you give us some examples of people who you think have developed a very strong voice the way that you just defined it? And perhaps if you can come up with an example that's fairly literal, when I say literal, in the speaking context, and then mm. someone from out of domain for people who are, let's say they're business people and they're not typically looking so broadly at creative people out in the world. It's always interesting to see in domain, out of domain examples. So anything come to mind? Um, you know, somebody, somebody I know I'm, I'm very familiar with is uh, Scott Stratton. I don't know if you know Scott, but he's, he's actually a fellow Canadian. Uh, you know, Scott is someone who has managed to carve out a little niche where he's able to go in and communicate about, um, you know, various topics related to deconstructing the traditional sense of, of marketing and advertising and, and social media and all these things. But he does it in a way that's very reflective of who he is and and kind of what he cares about. And he doesn't really you know pull any punches and he just kind of goes in and does his thing. And I think he's he's built a tremendous business being able to just go in and be himself and communicate about what he what he sees and what he notices. Um, mm-hmm. And I think he has a very compelling voice uh, you know, as a result of that. So I have I've seen him speak on video and and I can understand why you would identify him as somebody who does have a strong voice. So when you're describing him to me, 
it resonates with me, but for people who haven't had the benefit of seeing Scott speak, yeah. and I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but can you think of, of a few very simple, concrete things that he does that created this kind of alignment and depth in his voice that, that had him come to the forefront of your mind? One of the things that really that made him come to mind immediately is um, his willingness to fully invest himself in his message. I mean, he doesn't pull punches. He puts himself out there. And that's one of the things you know, we talk about authenticity. Sometimes we think that means just you know, opening the kimono. Hey, oh, come all ye. If you like what you see, great. If you don't, you don't. Um, but that's not really, I think, a healthy understanding of authenticity. Authenticity is about investing yourself in what you believe in investing yourself in your work and putting that out there where people can see it. And Scott is someone who I see uh, consistently putting himself out there, pulling no punches. I mean, he's all in, right? Um, he, it's clear to see he has skin in the game when he's communicating. Mm. And I think that that is a reason why he's compelling. And he's, he's not for everybody either, by the way. Mm. You know, and some people probably don't like what he does because he sometimes kind of rants on stage, you know, about things. That's also the reason a lot of people really love him because they can very clearly see I'm in or I'm out. Um, it's not the kind of thing where he's so wishy-washy that nobody remembers him. Um, right. So, you know, he would be an example of someone I think who has the authenticity thing going on, which, you know, he's investing himself. He's all in. He's got the vision thing going on because he's very clearly trying to convince his audience of something. You know, he's very clearly trying to lead them somewhere. There's a vision that he has when he communicates. People don't care about your data. People are busy. They have things going on. They don't care about your content. They want to know, how does this relate to me? How are you going to move me? How are you going to change me? How are you going to influence me to behave differently? That's what people want to know when you're right. communicating, when you're on stage. You, you talked a moment ago about the danger of, of being close to the muddy middle and the, and the importance of really taking a stand for some content. And Todd, that reminded me of one of the most accomplished comedians on the face of the earth was asked, hey, what's the secret to success? And hmm. he said, I have no idea, but I guarantee a recipe for failure. And it's trying to please everybody. Right. Which certainly ties into what you were just saying. Todd, let, let's go back to context. And you, you do such a nice job in the book of explaining the importance of context. And you give some really simple, accessible examples, I think, drawn from your, your days as a young teenager. Can you tell us a bit about what context is, why it's important, and give us an example? Yeah. So um, your context for your work means that you are helping other people understand how your idea, which could be a very new idea, could be a very dangerous idea, fits into something that they're already familiar with. Now, some people will say, well, wait a minute, you're talking about trend chasing. You're talking about, you know, just creating something that's popular or what? No, that's not what I'm talking about at all. What I mean is you have to help other people understand how what you're communicating, which could be a very new, very dangerous idea, fits into something that they already understand, something they already see, or something that's already already has some cultural momentum. I mean, one of the examples I give in Louder Than Words is the example of the Like a Girl campaign, which I'm sure everybody probably listening has has seen or experienced now. But, um, you know, when that was created, and I think, by the way, I think this created out of the one of the Canadian offices for, for Leo Burnett, but uh, it was created for the, for the Always brand for Procter & Gamble. And, you know, basically it's, you know, a, a, like an early 20 something woman walks in and they ask her, you know, run like a girl, you know, so she sort of flails her arms around and kind of acts silly. And they do this with several, you know, like 20 something women and some, some young men as well. And then they bring in some like young girls, like nine and 10 years old. And they say, what does it mean to run like a girl? And they just, you know, and they're just like running like really seriously and focus and all that. And the question was, when did like a girl become a slam, right? When did that become something negative? When you say you do something like a girl. 
And, you know, this idea was so profound because, A, it captured something that the brand already cared about. They'd already been working on issues related to, you know, teenage girl self-esteem and all of that for many, many years and investing resources into those issues. It's, it's obviously something that people care about. I mean, they care about how their, their young girls feel about themselves and, and whether they, you know, that term like a girl is kind of a slam, you know, or whether they feel, you know, because there, there are some significant data showing that, um, you know, that women lose significant amounts of self-esteem between certain ages and it's during those teenage years. Right. But also there was kind of an, a, a movement already happening culturally around female empowerment, around female self-esteem. I mean, you had like the Dove campaign for real beauty, you know, you had some other things that were already happening. So it was already kind of something that was out there in the cultural ethos that had some, some kind of latent energy. And so they were able to build at that intersection of what we care about, what the audience cares about and then ideas that already have some momentum. So there's already some kind of baked in momentum there. And that's really what it means to, to make sure that your ideas have context. You know, is there anything else like this out there that at least will give people hooks? That's how we make associations. That's how we make connections. It's how creative ideas happen. We have to have hooks to hang things on. If we don't, then we're going to ignore it. We're going to, you know, push it off. It's going to, you know, we're not even going to, as a speaker, as a communicator, this is really important. You know, when you're communicating something to people, it's why stories are so important. Stories contextualize, stories humanize, stories give people hooks to hang principles on. You know, they very rarely walk away from a talk remembering every single bullet point that you delivered, but they will remember a couple of key bullet points if they have a nice story to hang it on. Right. Um, and so that's what context does for us. And that's why it's so important for us to think about how can I contextualize this for people so that they have some of those hooks to hang my brand new, scary, potentially dangerous idea upon. And what's really interesting to me in those stories, I can only imagine it's an opportunity for people's identity to show up to use the stories to help take your audience to where you want to lead them. And also, just to, by picking the right story to illustrate the right point, that takes a certain amount of mastery. Right. Is there an intersection between your building blocks of voice and how story can be used to enable those things? Oh, unquestionably. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I do that as a, as a presenter, as a speaker all the time. I mean, I tell stories strategically based upon um, you know, my need to communicate something about myself. That's why sometimes I will tell a story about my son or about my daughter or something. And sometimes stories can also, as it relates to you, sort of this identity and authenticity piece, you know, when you tell kind of self-deprecating stories, it can humanize you, you know, and put you in a different light before the audience. You know, when you see someone on stage and they're like, I am the greatest and let me tell you why you need to think a certain way. You know what I mean? Like we've all seen those presentations where we just kind of have this, ugh, this kind of nasty taste in our mouth while the person's on stage. You just feel like this person is really, really full of themselves and a barrier goes up with the right. audience. It's like there's an extra wall that you have to navigate. But the act of simply telling a story where you're kind of the punchline or where you got something wrong and you had to go and make amends for that or something like that, something as simple as that can go a long way toward building a bridge with your audience, you know, and, and humanizing you as a presenter. And, and also, frankly, you know, those emotional moments where you reveal something and you become almost you know, really vulnerable and you're kind of 
um, showing people that you're, you're human, you recognize you're human, you just happen to have a platform and you're communicating, you know, and you have some insight that you want to share with them. But it makes people want to hear what you have to say because they recognize that you're coming from a position of, listen, I'm not trying to make myself look great here. I'm trying to, to get my vision across. I'm trying to help you see why this is important to you. And when you're willing to put yourself on the altar in order to make that happen, people are much more willing to listen to you. So what, what holds people back from, from doing some of these things? Because I agree with you, they absolutely work. Uh, it, it takes, as you say, some vulnerability. And interestingly, I think underneath that, it takes a quiet confidence. So what do you think some of the barriers are to people acting on these great ideas that you have? I think number one, we make it about ourselves, right? I think that's the biggest problem people have in any sphere is that they make it about themselves. Your work is never about you. Never, ever, ever. Your work is about the people you're serving. And you might get joy and satisfaction and gratification um, out of your work. And that's great. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with enjoying your work. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying the fruits of your work. But when you make your work about yourself, that's when I think people start to get off the rails when they get in trouble. And ultimately, I think that's the beginning of the end for you. And so people aren't willing to be vulnerable because they want to be seen as the person, you know, and we have to listen. We also have to be careful. We have to, to build some some barriers around that. Um, you know, like, like there are things that are appropriate for me to share from stage and things that are not appropriate for me to share from stage, um, things that are irrelevant to my audience, right? So there's like strategic vulnerability as well. Um, there's some people who believe in complete transparency. And I think that's a myth. I think it's dangerous, actually. Yeah, not to mention, it can be very awkward for everybody in the room. Absolutely. You know, when you are overly vulnerable, it is exhibiting a lack of empathy for your audience, right? Because it makes your audience feel uncomfortable. Listen, this is not a group therapy session. They're there to get something from this talk. They're hoping that you're going to deliver something. But strategic vulnerability can go a long way toward humanizing you and helping you, you know, uh, be someone that, that they respect. Um, so I think a couple of reasons people don't do it. Number one, fear. I think we artificially escalate the perceived consequences of failure. You know, what's going to happen if I do this and it doesn't connect or it doesn't click or whatever. Um, and, and we think it's going to be the worst thing in the world. I think there are narratives that creep into our lives that cause us to, uh, you know, to, to, to believe things like I have to be seen as invulnerable, perfect, the most respected person in the room. I have to be, um, the expert I have to be, you know, um, and, and these like narratives, I think play out, you know, in our, in our brain and they prevent us, uh, often from being able to engage fully and freely. And, you know, I think, I think sometimes good old fashioned inertia, we just get really comfortable in what we're doing and we, we don't venture into uncomfortable places anymore. And I think sometimes the love of comfort's the enemy of greatness in our lives. You know, a lot of people don't get to a place where they're, they're achieving the contribution they're capable of simply because they've circled the wagons and they're just kind of phoning it in. So I think we have to, in every case, I mean, when I present, there before every time I go on stage, I sit, I sit off stage and I say two things to myself over and over and over. You call it a mantra, whatever you want, but it's, uh, you'll be present and be yourself, mm. be present and be yourself because it's so easy to a not be present. It's easy to kind of, you know, phone it in. I mean, I do this 40 plus times a year, often giving the same presentation, like the same content, you know? So it's easy just to kind of go up there and up oh, here comes the next slide. And I'm just going to tell this story. And mm -hmm. here's, you know, um, that's a, that's a really damaging thing. You have to be present and you have to be yourself, which means there are going to be little, you know, sort of fingerprints on every presentation that should be a little bit different from the previous presentation. So what might some of those look like? The fingerprints. 
Yeah. Like uh, noticing what's going on in your environment, you know, just mm. making, making little quips or little cracks about, you know, kind of what's going on in the room or noticing when the audience isn't engaged and ramping up your energy, you know, or, or downplaying your energy if it's appropriate, because sometimes it's not appropriate. Right. Or mentioning a conversation that you had with someone earlier, you know, around the coffee, you know, out, out in the lobby or whatever, but, but little things that sort of add that, little bit of, you know, if I was, if I was sitting down across from you and I was having a conversation with you and I just basically verbatim did everything that I did in the last conversation I had with someone 10 minutes before, it's going to be really weird, you know? <laughs> and, and, but I think many of us, when we think about presenting, that's how we think about it. We think about, you know, I know you'll get different advice from different people, but I really think there's something humanizing about just being in the moment and you have to know your content down cold. That's not an excuse to, you know, to, to not know your content. I think it's how some people might interpret that. Well, Hey, I'm just going to wing it. I'm just going to, you know, no, 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 no. It takes an extra level of competence and mastery to be able to know when to let go of all of that. Right. And not go on autopilot and instead to just be in the moment and to, and not everything's going to work. Some things are going to fail miserably, uh, but that's okay. That sort of adds to the charm as well of the presentation. That's part of that authentic voice, I think. Right. And, and, you know, it's interesting, speaking about the authentic voice in a more literal sense, when you do the things that you're advocating people do to be be present and be themselves, like referencing back to a conversation, a coffee break, your voice will sound completely conversational and authentic. Hmm. Unlike for some people, when they've got their little memorized talking point in their head, often when the voice comes out, it just sounds like it's been memorized. Right. So there's all kinds of layers of goodness in the advice that you're just giving. Todd, a few minutes ago, you mentioned empathy, and I, and I know that's an important focus in, in Louder Than Words. Talk to us about why empathy is important and, and how can you use it to your advantage? Yeah. So em, you know, empathy is a choice. Empathy is something we have to choose. It's not necessarily a natural thing for, for humans to empathize with others. And we, th- we sympathize with them, right? But to Make the strategic choice to enter into what they're feeling, to consider when have I felt something similar, and then to consider what does that mean about how I should communicate with that person. It's really important that we be willing to do that. It, it, again, it's we think we're empathizing and we're not. We're abstracting. You know, so it is a choice that we have to make to to empathize. Um, the story of of Jerry Hazelmeyer uh, that that I thought was really really great. Um, he's he works for a company called Seek and. Um, he was sharing with me about, you know, his, his father who was uh, in a tragic accident when he was um, younger and as a result, you know, ended up essentially, you know, unable to, to use many of his faculties for a, a big part of his life. And his father sort of had to become this innovator where he was able to create, you know, different things that helped his life be better because there weren't really tools to help him be better. You know, when he was sort of you know constricted, when he was in bed or whatever, he wasn't able to really... Uh, you know, experience or, or use some of the things that some of us are able to use. And Jerry said that 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 experience growing up really has helped him develop a empathy for people who are in circumstances where innovation is the 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 line between you know life and death for some people, but certainly quality of life and a miserable experience of life. And so that really taught him the importance of empathy and the importance of being able to enter into the pain points and experiences of 
your audience and to innovate, to create, to, to make new things with that in mind, right? Understanding not just abstractly, oh, these are some of the problems they have, but understanding what does it feel like to have those problems? You know, what does it feel like to be in a position where you're stuck or to feel like you don't really have a way out or you don't feel like you know how to make this decision or whatever it is? How can I enter into that? Not, not just the problem, but the feeling of the problem. And then how can I create something or craft something that exhibits that empathy. And so some people's response to be, well, that's manipulation. No, it's not manipulation. That's, that's an incredible amount of emotional intelligence that you're exhibiting when you're able to go in, you're able to sit in that feeling, and then you're able to craft something that perfectly helps the other person navigate that based not upon abstract advice, but based upon what it really feels like to be in that circumstance. And, and in addition to that, I think it's often an interesting way to make this deep connection as you talk about, but also to build your credibility. And I'm thinking about more in the in a very much a business context where you're providing one service to to some kind of a client. And, and to be able to truly empathize with that client, in addition to all the things you just mentioned, is also a great way to show I understand the challenge that you're in. And right. that's why I'm able to create this this solution, which makes so much sense for you. Right, right. Todd, one of the things that I've really benefited from you, I love getting your your weekly fuel of creative ideas that you send out. And as a result of that, you introduced me to a podcast, and that's of Tim Ferriss. And right. Tim, as you know, he loves to deconstruct and, and apply the 80-20 principle. So I'm going to turn that on you in that if people were to apply Pareto's law to cultivating their voice, what are some quick hits where with a, a shorter amount of emphasis and effort, they can get some bigger returns on cultivating their voice. So I'll just give one very quick thing in each of those three areas. The first one is to apply the notables, meaning pay attention in your environment to places where your work is especially resonant. Mark those down. Um, look at places in your life where you have really deeply connected when you just knocked it out of the park. A, why did you do that? B, are there any replicable things that happened in that circumstance that you can learn from and you can apply again? Uh, and B, what were, what were you thinking, feeling, doing, noticing in those moments, right? And that, again, relates to authenticity and it relates to identity. The second one is, is relates to vision. Define your intended audience. Many people create work and they don't think about their intended audience, you know, so it's impossible for them to craft their work with precision, whatever that is. If it's a speech, if it's a, you know, if something they're writing, if it's something they're designing, they have this abstract understanding of their intended audience, but they don't, they haven't thought very precisely about the person that they're trying to reach. So that would be a second thing. Make sure that for everything you create, you have a very precise intended audience and that you've done the work of empathizing with where they are. And then the third one is, as it relates to mastery, is establish a set of daily practices. I call these the dailies, right? But daily practices that are helping you get better, helping you hone your skill, your ability to communicate uh, so that over the course of time, you're, you're seeing incremental progress day after day after day, and you're getting over time, then you'll get exponentially better, right? If you're getting a little bit better every day, then over the course of time, that's going to add up to tremendous mastery of craft. But you know, nobody sits down and you know, just cranks out a great book, you know, or, or nobody just gets up and gives a great speech, you know, for the first time. Typically, it's a result of lots and lots of layers of practice and experience. So what are those 
little skills that you need to be practicing on a daily basis every single day. Keep track of it. Keep track of how often you do it so that over the long run, you're going to get better and better and better at what you do. Super helpful. Todd, at the beginning of this year, I didn't take the traditional SMART goal orientation to New Year's resolutions. I picked three words. And the first of those three words was to create. And so in 2015, I said, I just want to go out there and create. And as we get close to November, I'm just shaking my head and saying, where was Todd Henry in my life on January 2nd? Because <laughs> I've gained so much from, from your work, whether it's in your podcast, whether it's in your, in your written books, whether it's in your speeches I've watched on video, and as I've already said, your newsletters. I've benefited from your work, so I want to thank you for that. For other people that want to continue to benefit from you and your body of work, what's the best way that they can find you? Uh, the best way to find me is at toddhenry.com, and you can get to my podcast, my books, everything else from there. Terrific. Todd, thank you so much. Thank you, Trevor. Thanks for joining us today on The Podium Project. We hope that you found the conversation interesting and useful. We love feedback, so please share your thoughts in the comment section, and we're always looking for great topics and questions to talk about. So please do drop us a note at podcast at podiumconsulting.com if there's anything you'd like us to cover on a future episode. If you're not yet a member of the Podium Club, it's free. Get yourself over to podiumconsulting.com and sign up so that you can receive member-exclusive offers and insights that I only share by email. Until next time, get up on that proverbial podium and don't be afraid to use what Todd would describe as your authentic voice.